Welcome to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Hello and welcome to another edition of Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and me, Kevin Hillier. Well, Kevin, I'm so excited about the guest we have on this week, the wonderful Judy Nunn. She sold over a million books worldwide. Not surprised. Not surprised. She is an amazing writer, a very talented author. So much research, as she'll she'll tell us and explain to us, goes into writing these uh, these massive books. And she's got a new one, Black Sheep, that has just uh, been released. It is uh, it's it's an amazing effort, and I'm I'm always been fascinated by how she has combined her her acting and entertainment career with also moonlighting, I guess as she calls it, mm. as a writer. Yeah, uh, and a terrific career as an actress. <laughs> Ailsa on Home and Away for yes. 13 years, Kevin. And uh, I remember as a kid growing up, uh, she was uh, she was the biggest bitch on Australian <laughs> television, to be honest, when she was Vicky, Vicky in uh, The Box. The Box. Yeah. That, that was a groundbreaking oh, role for so many reasons. But also imagine being 13 years, you know, opposite Ray Ma, your flame and glah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like working with you. Oh, um, you, now, take, you take that back. Our, our food poll this week... Mm. Interesting one. Yeah, it's a it's a veggie one. Yeah, chickpeas. Which, you can do so much with them. In yeah, fact, oh yeah. gosh, you wait till we bring out the air fryer on this, Kevin. You see what oh, you can do with your chickpeas. Actually, the food poll this week has a, an incredible tip in there. Yeah, uh, we automatically think of them as a health food, and I guess they are. Yeah. But gee whiz, they're a great snack. You food. know, one thing you can do with them. Oh. You can- <laughs> You can ignore yes, Kevin. Them and, and hope <laughs> you can that they put them go somewhere. away. <laughs> um, yeah, but you've got to, you've got to open your mind to oh, the possibilities. Okay, yeah, righto. We'll get to chickpeas later. Let's get to Judy Nunn first, our guest here on Food Bites. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Sarah. I'm very well, thank you, and I hope you are too. Hello. Thank you so much, Judy, for doing this for us. No worries at all. This is a thrill. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. Oh, I'm thrilled too. It is definitely a thrill. <laughs> Judy, to start off, just to set the scene for us, tell us uh, where we find you these days. Well, where you find me at this exact moment in time, I'm sitting with foils in my hair <laughs> in the little courtyard of my hairdresser, who is also a dear friend, in Surrey Hills in Sydney in a city suburb. Um, oh, well, isn't that the glamorous life that you lead? You should see me now. I'm not looking particularly pretty <laughs> at all. It's not a good look, I can promise you. And where in the world would we normally find you, uh, Judy? My husband and I live up the central coast, um, well, what is called the lower central coast, outside of Sydney in New South Wales, about an hour and a half north of Sydney, uh, right on the waterfront there. It's very beautiful. We can walk over the hill and then you're not looking out over the waters, but you're looking out over the ocean. So we've got still water and boat moorings on one side and we've got the ocean on the other of this peninsula. So it's very lovely. That's where you'd normally find me. (laughs) Very good. Now, we're going to talk about your fabulous acting and writing career, uh, but uh, let's start. Is the kitchen a happy place for you? Look, it used to be a far more active uh, place for me than it is now, Kevin, Um, uh, because, you know, well, Tempest Fugit, you know, I'm a lot older than I was, and, um, you know, I had stepsons via Bruce's first marriage when they were, you know, 12 or 13, and grew up, and so they always had their mates there, and I was always making huge dinners and uh, and lunches, particularly Sunday lunches, and I loved all that. I did love the hubbub of a kitchen, 
And I wasn't a bad cook, to be quite honest. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't call myself a chef. But sometimes I was even a bit experimental, so I made things up, and sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. But I took quite a bit of pride in, in supplying people with food. It's not as important to me anymore. Is that because you find, um, as all of us do, as we, we get a bit older, our, uh, our, the way we view food, the way we process food, everything's a bit uh, different about what appeals to us? Oh, no, not necessarily. I think it's simply because I don't have as much call to entertain. Um, I don't have the dinner parties. used to have big, big backyard parties too, big parties. I'd make walloping great, I had the biggest pan in the world you've ever seen, and I'd make uh, steamed mussels and things that people would eat straight out of this whopping great big sauce buddy thing, you know, um, and all stuff like that. Uh, there's not the call for it now. Um, I always cook, I cook for my husband, um, but I don't even throw as many dinner parties as I used to. Life isn't as social when I'm not working. When I'm working, it's quite social. But that's when I come into the city. We also have a little flat in the city, you see. So it's from Sydney where I fly out on book tours and things like that. So we have two places that we centre ourselves. Judy, we would normally ask on this podcast uh, if our guest has a uh, sweet tooth, but I seem to remember reading somewhere some time ago that you don't have a sweet tooth. No, I don't. I, I don't, funnily enough. I don't know whether I trained myself not to as a very young actress when you madly, you know, keep yourself smelt and everything like that. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I, I'm not even I, – I don't even particularly like chocolate unless it's, you know, very dark chocolate with the most wonderful soft truffle inside or something like that, which is a real work of art. Uh, I, I, I don't want to scoff down chocolate bars, bars and I don't like chocolate cake. And I must be the only person in the, in the whole of Australia who doesn't like Jim Tam. <laughs> They're too rich, too sickly, yeah. Very un-Australian. Judy, what's going on? Um, uh, uh, no, I do like Vegemite, though, so <laughs> oh, I qualify. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Um, uh, as an author, is your working day, do you get up and, and have a working day or do you write when the inspiration hits you or how do, how do you organise yourself in, in terms of being a writer? Anybody who says they just write when the inspiration hits them is not a professional author, I could tell you. I mean, you'd never get anything done, frankly. Uh, you, you, I mean, you have to you – I mean, Geraldine Brooks said the most wonderful quote lately. I don't normally madly give other writers a great big boost like this, but I admired her for it. She said, if there's no wind, then row. <laughs> if you think of inspiration as the wind that blows your, your sail and you gust off and off you go, no, no, it won't be there. Very often you've just got to get out the, the oars of the rollocks and row. <laughs> and this is, it's a very, that's a very good little saying she came up with. I love it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, of course, you, 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 most authors are very passionate about their work, as indeed am I. And you love it when you're on a roll, but you have to work to get on that roll. And and you can't just leave it go and think, I'm not in the mood now. I'll wait until something really exciting hits my brain. You can't do that. You'll never go back to your work. It's too dangerous. So do you get up every every morning? And is, is coffee a, a part of your <laughs> regime to get you going, to spark you of a, of a day? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. There's no particular way to write a book at all. Uh, some writers, I mean, say they, they literally chain themselves to their computer and work a 16-hour day. Other people say, yes, I do so many. I do 10,000 words a day. I don't do any of that. Uh, some, I mean, Bruce, my husband, 
he will just literally free fall. Chapter one, page one, off he goes, and he'll just write, you know, uh, no, I don't. I labor over it. Um, and But I do, I don't ever take my head outside the book for too long at all. And at the end of each workday, I go into big print and I just write without giving any thought about, you know, the quality of writing or syntax or anything like that, just where I want to jump in for tomorrow so that when I come back to start the next day or if I have to leave it for a couple of days because I do some other work, charity work, etc., um, then I know I'm back there and I think, oh, yes, I could get excited about this. I can work on this. So I never leave off between a rock and a hard place. Your latest book, uh, Judy, congratulations on it, Black Sheep. It's another sweeping historical novel in which you specialise. It's about a uh, prosperous sheep farming family and all uh, the challenges they face. Uh, I love what it says on the front cover, Black Sheep. There's one in every family. It's so true. What was the inspiration behind this particular book? Well, it's really too complex to go into, actually, because I, 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 as you might have gathered, I can't talk too much, and I've got to be a little more succinct in my answers, I think. But funnily enough, uh, the inspiration behind it is very bizarre because it is actually the nursery rhyme, Bar Bar Black Sheep, which sounds bizarre. But like most English nursery rhymes, very, very old. I mean, that was this nursery rhyme was written in the 13th century. Um, it has a very... Uh, a very powerful message behind it. Most of them were political. Some of them were very violent. And uh, and I, I just used that as an inspiration. But the three bags full in Bar Bar Black Sheep, uh, one for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. Well, the master was the king and the dame was the church and the little boy down the lane was the farmer who did all the hard work. And it was, uh, it was a, a medieval king of England who wanted to raise taxes to fund his uh, his religious wars. So he taxed uh, hugely. He taxed wool, which in England, as it is in in Australia, of course, uh, and has always been uh, a massive importance of massive importance to the economy. And so the king got a third of the, the, the taxes raised and the church got a third because you always had to look after the church. And the poor farmer who'd done on the work uh, only got a third. So I interpreted this in a different way. Uh, I actually, oh, it's too, it's too complex to go into, mm. but I hope that was remotely interesting. I can only imagine, though, uh, Judy, it takes a, a certain degree of patience uh, in terms of writing a historical novel. The research side of it, for one, uh, just must be a, a huge uh, undertaking. Uh, yes, it is. It's very daunting, particularly if you're writing about something that you don't really know about. I mean, for instance, a typical example would be a book I wrote called Heritage, which is based in the Snowy Mountains uh, and all about the building of the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme. Well, it's one of the most complex engineering undertakings in the world and the biggest of its time. But it wasn't actually about the engineering of it. But I had to learn all about it so that I knew what my people were doing. It was really more about the birth of multiculturalism because of all the migrants who were brought out here to replace a whole generation of young men that had been lost in the war. So we had no specialists, we had no no workers, no labourers. So it, 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 you've, you've got to undertake 100% of research so you really know what you're talking about, but then throw out 80% of it because you've got to get to the point of the book 
For instance, in this book, in Baba in, in Black Sheep, <laughs> inspired by the nursery rhyme, <laughs> I had to learn a lot about the breeding of the finest merino wool, which is what my family is doing. But it's actually more about, as as you said, Sarah, about the title of the book, there's one in every family. It's really more about the genetics of the people who are breeding the fine merino sheep rather than the sheep themselves. So that's the whole point of discovering what you want your book to be about. So you have to research the hell out of it and then forget about it. Otherwise, it'll sound like a history book or a a lesson to people, and I don't want to do that. It's got to be about the characters and what they're saying. How much does it help, Judy, having a a partner in life who is also a writer? And also, um, from the patient side of things, do you have to have an incredible amount of patience to uh, to continue to to pursue um, the, the plot and the book? Well, it, it, it is lovely having a fellow writer as one's partner in the way that we don't we don't um, write in, in in partnership or anything like that. Although we we will help each other in in talking about things. What do you reckon about this? What do you think about that? Or 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 if one of us is really under the hammer as far as the deadline goes meeting a deadline, the other one will look up some some stuff, a bit of research material or, or read a book for us or whatever. But where it's very helpful is uh, you've got somebody else in the marathon, the long distance, very lonely marathon with you so that you could talk about things and they know what your book's about. I know what Bruce's novel will be about. He knows what my novel is about so that you could share things. And that's lovely because it's a, a very lonely business writing a novel. Is, uh, is this as satisfying a career for you as acting was or is it a totally different feel about this? Oh, it's a, it's a far, far more satisfying career for me at this stage in my life. Now, I keep on seeming to qualify stages of life, like I don't cook as much as I did when I was younger or whatever. But, I mean, you, you know, life does hold different stages. And I've been very, very fortunate in the way that the theatre was my first great love before television claimed me. Theatre is very damned hard work, particularly when I was off in London doing a British repertory. You're rehearsing one play in the daytime and doing another play at night, and they can be big classic ones. You know, Shaw, Shakespeare, Chekhov, Ibsen, you name them. So that's really for a young, very fit person. I did all of that, then I came back. Television claimed me. Yeah, I did long runs in soaps. I did all of that. Uh, then I, I got a little bit, well, like many long-term actors. I took to writing. I was writing scripts, moonlighting at the same time as I'm acting. Then I, by the time I, I left Home and Away, which was a, a very long soap for me from the pilot days, it was 13 years all up, 12 years to air. Um, and I got a little bit bored playing the same character, lovely though she may be. So by the time I left, I was seeking another creative outlet. outlet. I had five books already published. So by the time I left, I had a a readership, a following. So the natural progression was to now make my my career as a novelist. So each of these careers has been, I've been exactly the right time in my life to embrace each one. So the books are at this stage in my life the most important thing to me, you know? You did mention uh, just then uh, Home and Away and, and Ailsa being, a, you know, a, a lovely character and, and you spent uh, over a decade yep. playing her. But your breakout television role uh, was in, oh. uh, in, in the box and it would be remiss of me not to ask about your character, Vicky, uh, Vicky Stafford. Oh, she didn't, without a doubt, be my favourite character for 
the very simple reason, as Betty Davis very succinctly put it, uh, the bitches are always the best role. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. And she was known as the bitch of the box. Um, and it's true because, of course, writers love writing for bitches and bastards, forgive me. But, I mean, you know, it's much it's much more fun to write, you know, dialogue like, you know, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night, rather than, oh, dear, you don't look well. Would you like to lie down and I'll get you a Panadol? You know, I mean, it's much more fun writing the dastardly people, as I had in Black Sheep. The people in Black Sheep are just wonderfully black characters, some of them, yeah. Uh, your your novels are going to 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 the cinema or to to any of that sort of. Area. Do you do you see that or do you do you write them with that in mind or is it totally no no? No, I never write them with that in mind. I mean, uh, if I if I were mad keen to do it, having you know emanated from uh, the areas of script writing myself, then I would write a treatment. I'd write a character breakdown. I'd look and then I'd be sending that off to people. I don't want to do that. I've created. A narrative. I've worked in prose form. I don't want to then shift to writing in script form, which is a completely and utterly different form of writing. Uh, every now and then, yeah, somebody will buy up the rights to my novel, but it's because they'll buy up the rights to half a dozen, you know, different properties so that other people don't get them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you earn a few thousand for the screen rights for a couple of years and nothing comes of it. So that doesn't bother me. But I always get asked that question and uh, yeah, I now have a new agent and I'll put it to them, look, if you want to sort of run out there and, and sort of see if you can strike up movie deals. But in doing that, of course, most people will want to get together a treatment and that sort of thing. Yeah. So when somebody says, can I have the rights of your film, uh, of your of your book, this book or that book, on oh, one book I wrote called Marilinga had the rights bought up twice. You know, I had to put off somebody who wanted them because somebody else had already bought them and then increased the, the ownership of the rights from two years to five. So that, that'll always be happening, but I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Judy, um, I, it's a food podcast, so just a bit out of left field here. If, yeah. uh, if Judy, you and Bruce were to hold a, a dinner party and you could invite anybody you like, dead or alive, who'd be on your guest list? Well, do you want me to be serious or facetious? I'll be facetious <laughs> first and then we can, can, we can leave it at that because probably more fun. Well, well, I'd probably, I'd just invite, you know, two highly camped guys and two highly camped females. Uh, and so I'd have Oscar Wilde and Noel Coward for the boys. They'd be competing as to who could be the wittiest. And then I'd have Co- Coral Brown and Bette Midler for the girls because they'd be, they're so high camp and they're such fun women, you know. Oh, well, Coral Wilde, she's long dead, of course. Um, but if I were to be serious, I'd probably do David Attenborough because I just think he's about the most fascinating man of God's earth. And then Charles Darwin, um, you know, because we could talk all about, uh, well, I mean, he set the world on fire with, uh, you know, on the origin of species. And Noah Yuval Harari, who is, I just changed my life when I read his trilogy of uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus. And, uh, and, and that really is another one that, He's an Israeli writer who you must read his trilogy. It's it's just and for the women, I'd have I'd go for some uh, uh, politicians who have been wonderful as the backups for their husbands who would never have made it anywhere without them. I don't reckon. And that's Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, Clementine Churchill, and then I'd invite Julia Gillard just to be different because oh. by golly, yeah, well she was up full. She did 
she became our first female prime minister on her own without having to say, here's my baby, actually being able to say, well, actually, I'm an atheist. I'm sorry, I don't affiliate myself with the church and with God. And I think that's bloody bold, and I admire her for it. Yeah. And she'd be in the company of really bold women like Eleanor Roosevelt, who swung both ways, was bisexual, and with Clementine Churchill, who really, how could anybody else live with Churchill? It's Love to be a fly on the wall. Yeah, that'll be hand. That's a hand. Yeah. That is that is a big dinner party. That one. That's a huge one. It is. It is, isn't it? There'd be a lot of talk going on. Now, <laughs> before they have to take the Teflon things off your head, um, <laughs> the hairdressers there, Judy. Is there anything that you haven't done that you want to do? There's, is there anything on your bucket list from in in the entertainment world, in the professional world, that you want to do? Well, not really, because I'm so enjoying what I'm doing now, uh, the natural progression would probably be, apropos, I think, Sarah's, Sarah's question about movies or something like that, would be to to um, to produce a movie. No, I wouldn't want to, because whenever people have bought up the rights to my books for movies, they've said, do you want to be in on the script writing part? I've said, no, no, I don't. And even if they really make a mess of it, it still helps the sales of the books, by the way, would you believe? <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Uh, but uh, but no, because I don't want to get my head around that. But I'd probably, I'd probably look at directing. Directing would be a natural progression, I think, yeah. because acting, writing is a natural progression from acting because actors are always working with the development of characters, dialogue, scenarios. Uh, it's a very natural progression for any actor over long term to start writing. And then many of them, of course, take to directing or producing their own material. And Judy, just to to wrap up, we usually like to ask our guests if they have a kitchen tip or a cooking tip to share. Do you have one of those? I tell you what, there is one that probably people would consider, again, too old hat for now, and that's using uh, root ginger in cooking, uh, which is, of course, immensely popular, given particularly uh, Asian cuisine uh, influence these days, which I simply adore. And these days, of course, the whole thing is to cut your root ginger up. You know, you peel it and you cut it into either slivers or sticks or whatever it is. And then, of course, as you're eating it, you bum into this lump of something that you really can't get your teeth around or chomp, and you don't want to anyway. And that's how it adds the flavour to the food. But my mum always kept her root ginger in the freezer, and then you would never need to uh, to to peel it, which is a pain in, in the butt, uh, and you would just simply grate it. You would grate frozen ginger, ah, yeah. and it would disappear into the cooking, and you would have all of those flavours. And I still do that. I still use that all the time whenever I want root ginger. Wonderful. Very good. Judy, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on not just Black Sheep but on, on your body of work uh, as a writer and, uh, and as an, an actor. An actor. Uh, and we, uh, we've had a ball having a chat to you on Food Bites. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. See ya. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. And that book is available now. If you want to check it out, Black Sheep, Sheep is, yep. it is the name. Uh, Penguin uh, published it, but uh, she has uh, just dozens of books. Great body uh, of work. Congratulations, incredible, Judy. Incredible. Incredible. Well done. Thank you for being on the program. Really appreciate it. Now, now. it's time for uh, 
it's time for the food poll. Let's go to the pantry and grab a can, grab a can of chickpeas. Well, I reckon every pantry would have a, a, a tin of chickpeas. There's so many things you can do with them that I didn't think you could. Now, can I just suggest something? Mm. Check the use-by date on that can because <laughs> it, it could be... Oh, because the liquid goes a bit rancid, doesn't it? 1992, which is mm. probably not going to be a good thing. All right, let's find out what everyone thought about Okay, this. so much potential for this food. Oh, Old yeah. Croaky, one of my favourites, is yep. going to start us off. He says, nah, chickpeas, not for me. As the name suggests, I will leave this one for the ladies. The Stephen Cordemay <laughs> says no. Ali says nope. Artie says, I've never had enough interest in them to consider them. Perhaps I've eaten them at times, but I really can't tell you. I don't have any in my kitchen. Yeah. Silvana says, depends on how they are cooked. So it is a sometimes uh, from me. Sue says, I know they can be made into nice things if you add five billion other yeah. ingredients. I have a tin in the cupboard and I know they'll be there <laughs> till the end of time. So it's a no from me. See, she speaks that the tin. truth. There yes. you go. Lonely old tin yep. up the back. Uh, Rebecca says, yay, they they are so great to do in many things. And, of course, Rebecca is a vegan, so She's I reckon she would vegan. use them in a lot of recipes. Kerry says yum. Rob Elliott just gives us a lovely picture of a, uh, a green uh, vomiting emoji. Couldn't even be bothered buying a vowel, Rob Elliott, <laughs> you lazy sod. Um, Muriel Cooper says, look, I love them. What a great food. Uh, chuck them in a casserole, yeah. make hummus, a mm. snack on them. They're magnificent, says Muriel. That is a yes, says yeah, Muriel. Yeah, we forget that hummus is made up yeah, of is. chickpeas, yeah, no, lemon juice, olive oil, bit of garlic, bit of this, that. bit of that. Rachel says it's a yay. Ali says I love chocolate-covered <gasps> chickpeas. Hang Ali, on. Ali, where do I get these? Now you're just taking the peas. No. Now you're just taking <laughs> the, the peas <laughs> one double S. Kevin's here always. Chocolate-covered chickpeas. That sounds good. How diff- That wouldn't be much different to a chocolate-covered peanut, I would it? I might, I, might be, uh, yeah. I might be up for that. Especially if you air fry the chickpea first. Well, we're getting to that. Okay. Angie says yay as long as it's added to things. Uh, Michelle says, wash them thoroughly, mm. then pat them dry, like mm. a dog, with, <laughs> with whatever spices or salts that you put on them, and then put them in the air fryer until they're the size of dried <gasps> up peas. They are a beautiful little <gasps> snack to eat and very healthy, says Michelle. Michelle, I'm going to try this. I'm trying this today. Kevin, have we got chickpeas? Not in my air fryer, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Since when did it become yours, Yeah, there's a mate? tin. There's a, there's a <laughs> I think tin. it's got my name on it. There's a tin in the back like of the... Like all the knives around here. Is your name Sunbeam? <laughs> Karen says, oh, well, Joel... Why did you I, leave this one with me? I, I you do this to me all the time, so I'm stuck <laughs> I with it. I have no idea. I was hoping you Karen, you'd get I'm it. sorry to sound like such... so ignorant. Uh, C-H-O-L-E yeah, is the best and it is loaded with chickpeas. I yeah, feel yeah. so embarrassed that I don't know what that is. Kevin, go and Google it. Sue Hosking says, who doesn't love hummus? Oh, yeah. Great in other things too, obviously, uh, yes. chickpeas, like Mexican food, so it's a yes for I me. Love, yeah, hummus is great with, you know, mm. a bit of this and a bit yeah. of that. Davin Nicholas says, they're okay, very nice in a salad. Mark Stevens says, yay, and the voting Ooh, is in favour of the chickpeas. Seriously. Well, I'm not surprised. What are you people doing? It's the versatility you've closed off your mind. Sixty-five percent yes, thirty-five percent no. The chickpeas. As it should be. The chickpeas get a win. But you are go. you not even remotely interested in Michelle's suggestion of sticking them in the air fryer? I am. Yep, and uh, the chocolate-coated ones too may have caught my oh, attention. I've heard you can put them in the oven. I've never heard of chocolate-coated chickpeas before in my life. I can't say I have either, but it would have to be dark chocolate, wouldn't it? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, <laughs> another edition of Food Bites uh, for this week. Hope you've enjoyed it. Go and get those chickpeas out of the pantry. Check that use by date and get back to us on that one. <laughs> uh, enjoy the rest of your week. 
Thanks for listening to Food Bites. Check out our Facebook page for recipes, tips and all the latest news. That's Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier.